Welcome to today's edition of Subject ACT on 2XXFM. I'm Tanya Parshan and today we're speaking with Sophie Saden, who's a doctoral candidate, researcher and tutor at ANU's Coral Bell School. And today we're looking at radicalisation and what this means in Australia today going forward. Let's start firstly by defining radicalisation. In the 70s, being a radical was a bit of a cool thing to be. It meant you were against the system, looking at alternative paths, a bit of a nonconformist, which is probably not too different to what today's meaning is, but suddenly to be radical is not such a good thing. So what is a radical today and radicalisation? I would have to say that a radical today is what we've always deemed a radical to be, and that is someone who might have alternative ideas about things or alternative ways of doing things or suggestions about ways of doing things. I think that the term today has become more of a negative or pejorative term. When we use the term today, it seems to be associated with the kind of um, narrative that came out of 9-11, and that was that that people who do have alternative ideas or that people who do think uh, differently from the mainstream um, are radicalised. They are beyond just a traditional radical who, you know, might have been deemed as as cool or funky at one one point in in history. But now someone who does uh, advocate ideas which are apart from the mainstream or different to the mainstream ideas, someone who should be feared and someone who should be watched very closely. We tend to immediately think of Islam sadly. And it's actually not the case, is it? I mean, I I think we need to be very important to emphasise that alternative thinking is not a bad thing, but it is when it sort of goes towards beyond expressing yourself and actually inciting, I suppose. Is that the difference? Absolutely. I I would agree with that. I think, um, and and you're right, it's it's extremely unfortunate and and regrettable that post 9-11, the terms radical, radicalization, and extremism have become synonymous with, with Islam, mm. and it's not the case at all. But given the kinds of things that we've um, heard in the media and by certain political organisations, sadly, with their own agendas, as, as many groups have, these all seem to sort of go into the one space and they all seem to be only about people who are of a particular faith. I think the other thing to keep in mind and, and, and to sort of make um, make people realise is that um, post, you know, again, post 9-11, the, the term radicalisation didn't exist before 9-11. There was no such term as radicalisation. And as far as I can understand, or as far as I've, I've, I've sort of come across in my research, the term actually was first used by, um, and I believe it might have been a senior military member, a member of the military, uh, senior member of the military, uh, the US military, who started talking about people who were of particular stance as being radicalised, and it's come out of that sort of post-9-11 narrative. Interesting. So here in Australia, I mean, Australia, free speech, democracy, we, we're very happy about that. We're very proud of Absolutely. that as and a nation. Yeah. How does radicalisation sort of fit into that? Because it is the idea of anyone can say anything they like. I mean, we're seeing One Nation at the moment. We're seeing a bit of a, a kickback to that, but also we're quite proud of the fact that they are allowed to do that without any sort of oppression, government mm-hmm. oppression. That's great. Where does where does the fine line come in there? Mm-hmm. I would say that having an awareness or an exploration of alternative or radical ideas is just a normal developmental stage. It's a stage we've all been through it. All kids will go through it. Um, for some teenagers in particular, that particular stage of um, their development also seems to um, coincide with a stage of development that also has them questioning their identity. And that's where we start to see some youth become attracted to slightly more radical 
ways of, of viewing of viewing the world. In addition to that, it, we also have these extra factors that that can also contribute to to this process or to the way then that youths in particular who are far more vulnerable to the kinds of narratives or the kinds of propaganda that, that, that groups like ISIS will try and use. We've also got factors like what we call risk and, and risk pull and pull factors, which are things like they may come from a particular socioeconomic background, they may belong to a particular ethnic group, they may have particular mental health issues. There's a whole lot of other factors that combine in a certain person will lead to extreme behaviour. But the thing to keep in mind is all those factors combined doesn't mean that that particular person will become a radical Islamic extremist. They may turn to drugs. They may turn to, to gang violence. It's kind of pick your poison. It's, and, and, and effectively what ends up happening is the, the poison, so-called poison that they choose, depends on what their social network is made up of, where they live, where they're located, what what is the uh, the naughty group to join that's accessible to them in, in their environment, in their community. And for some kids, it's extreme groups with extreme ideologies. For some groups, it's gangs. For some groups, it's, it's uh, drug cartels. It, it really doesn't make any difference. There's not that much difference between joining a terrorist organisation and joining a gang, for example. We've talked about the spectrum of radicalisation. So as you say, it's not immediately jumping to violent extremism. No. That's probably the minority, in Absolutely. fact, a very sort of small amount. And Absolutely. It tends to be the ones that make the news, obviously. But mm-hmm. I'm really interested in what you're saying about sort of the gangs and that kind of thing because it does all come back to the propaganda, doesn't it? It mm-hmm. does all come back to, you know, I mean, at university I I wanted to overthrow China. I was all about free <laughs> Tibet, but I was never actually going to go there with that. So what are the issues these days that in your research you've found kids are kind of getting attracted to? I mean, I'd again, there's a lot of troubling things going on in the world, but where are they finding some of this information? How how what are they being attracted to here in Australia? Okay. Look, I think I think what they're attracted to here in Australia is pretty much the same thing that kids are attracted to anywhere in the world and that is being given a platform to feel that they are they have a voice and that they are important um, and they are empowered in some way. Um, groups, again, if we're talking about ISIS in particular, they know that and they know how to exploit that. These are most of these are, are youth who are going through these really difficult stages in their in their development and who are more susceptible to this kind of, of stuff. In terms of a spectrum, I would say that it's really hard to talk about it as a spectrum. I mean, you've got, you know, people, you some people might, define as radicals as having alternate views and and there's nothing wrong with having alternate views about the world. Radicalisation itself has become something that we uh, attribute to then these radical views being politicised and and taking on a more sort of sinister tone. But radicalisation or someone who's actually radicalised and someone who commits violent extremism or takes steps to commit violent acts, it's not the same thing. There are many people who actually are very sympathetic to what ISIS is saying and and the things that they actually say that they want to do, like establish a caliphate, have a home for Muslims, all that kind of stuff. Yet they would never be prepared to go out and kill someone to to force those views upon the society. Mm. So there is there is that fine line. In my research in particular, our research, 
what we've basically come to, the way that we've come to delineate between radicalisation and violent extremism is that violent extremism is the end point of radicalisation. So when your radical views views have developed to the point where you're willing to go out and commit acts of violence as a means of attaining the, the goals that you believe in, then that's one step too far. Is there research around or have you done some research around kind of the time that that can often take? Like you don't sort of immediately go out. I mean, it's like grooming really, isn't it? So you sort of see your first thing and someone talks about it to you and you start thinking about it and how long can this take? Is there any sort of data? This is the interesting thing. There's there's no, I don't think there's ever been that that I've come across, um, there might be stuff out there that I've come across so far that actually measures or plots a timeline between or tries to find out or or tries to compare I should say uh, different timelines amongst different people who have been radicalized and who've committed violent acts but as I understand it there is no single path to radicalization and that's the thing to keep in mind no two factors may have the same effect on the same on two different people Okay, it's 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 quite a complex thing, and and it depends on a whole number of variables. So, as the path to radicalization is not the same between two people, the path or the process to violent extremism is not going to be the same either. Mm. It may not be the same. Someone may be radicalized for a number of years and and think, yep, you know, I agree with what this particular group is doing or what they're espousing, and they're fine to leave it at that. And then something happens to them in their personal life or uh, something happens to them in terms of their health and all of a sudden they start to adopt a particular mentality which then perhaps perhaps clouds or colours the way that they see the world from that point on. We've touched on ISIS, but there are, of course, and and I think everyone kind of needs to to think about this as well. I mean, sometimes it's campaigning for animal rights. It's Occupy Wall Street. You know, there are white supremacy Mm. here in Australia. So there are many different ways, I suppose, or causes. And it is kind of that fine line between activism and radicalisation, as you say. I mean, it's, again, the fine line of of kind of wanting to save the chickens and burning (laughs) down the chicken coop or, or, you know... I, I mean, the example that I found was sort of Peter James Knight, who killed a security guard in an abortion clinic in Melbourne in 2001. He was he was he had sort of taken that final step, which, which is always ironic in the case of abortion. But in Australia, what are we sort of focusing on? It's not just ISIS. Is it sort of a, a across-the-board kind of looking, the, the work being done to counter-radicalisation? It does cover many different avenues, as far as you know, or...? There's a lot of research being done on radicalisation and terrorism. People have certain ways of of addressing that space and researching that space, but also engaging people within that space. I think the issue is how we talk about these labels, and that's effectively what they are. A radical, a terrorist, um, an activist are all labels, and they're subjective and these labels, um, the thing to remember about these labels, which, which are loaded with a whole lot of meaning, but the meaning comes from those who actually apply those labels, not the person that they've been applied to. So if we keep in mind that a particular label, if we keep in mind where a particular label has come from and, and who has constructed that label, who has applied that label and to whom, then we have a better understanding, I think, of the way in which certain parts of Australian society in particular view this this issue. The other thing to sort of keep in mind is that it really does come down to definitions. People's perceptions are affected by 
not defining things as much as they are by clearly defining things. And one of the issues around terms like radicalisation or terrorism is there is no one def- clear definition. There is not one universally accepted definition. Even in the United States, when we're talking about terrorism, the CIA and the FBI have got very different definitions of what terrorism is. And these are two US agencies that you would expect to have a lot more in common. So if we can't define what the problem actually is, how do we then know how to how to deal with the problem in an, in an effective and non-negative way or non-damaging way to our society. Which leads to the idea of, of well, yeah, what, what can be done, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's something you and I have spoken about before, the idea of safe spaces. Absolutely. Because, again, just to emphasise, of course young people or indeed anyone is looking for their niche. They're looking for what they believe in and that's really ought to be encouraged. Mm. But it is sort of, it's the breaking point where that sort of, tips over the edge but how do you stop it tipping over the edge mm-hmm. and there are programs around that I believe are, or, yes. or looking at that now yes, can you are. tell me about them there are a number of programs there are a whole lot of programs that have been piloted and used now for a number of years in in um, Europe and the UK in particular a couple in the United States um, there are programs who are, that are currently being used here in Australia I'm actually working on, a, on some research at the moment, which I can't really say very much about, but it's very exciting research. And it does actually look at the issue of dealing with youth radicalisation and the idea of creating safe spaces for um, youth in particular to be able to express these views that, that they're still developing and trying to nuance and, and trying to often use as a lens through which they view the rest of the world and, and view those around them. And that is dependent on more than just what they experience in home and what they learn on the internet. It's also, and I think this is a safe space, particularly in a school environment, is a very, very important place to to, to have. Now, having it in a school environment has a number of, of benefits. You have a group of people. I mean, a class is almost like a microcosm of society in general. You're going to have different views, people from different backgrounds, different ways of looking at things. But having it in a safe space, it's actually been constructed by by adults who firstly are trained to understand and to make sure that um, discussions are kept, with, kept within healthy limits, but also adults who don't see or who no longer see, who no longer uh, are as susceptible to the kind of influences that security and intelligence personnel have in their ways of dealing with alternate ideas or, or radical views. So if we can train teachers or adults who work or um, deal with students such as you know social groups or youth groups or whatever the case may be to not go looking for a radical and then dobbing them into the police, I mean, that's not going to help anyone really. I mean, and how would you know that if you haven't been trained? You know, it, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do. But to perhaps change the mindset and, and remember and remind them that, look, having alternative ideas is not a bad thing. If we're encouraging it in a safe space and we're allowing and empowering, and this is what it's really about, it's about empowering youth and giving them a voice and letting them and reminding them that, you know what, what you say has got value. We want to hear what you have to say, you know, and it's better that you say it in, in a space with adults who actually care about your development and care about where you're actually going with your ideas rather than treating kids uh, in particular who do voice radical ideas as being radicalised or being ones that we need to treat with suspicion or ones that we need to be very negative towards. It's not what our youth need to be hearing. You know, that's the thing. And the other thing to keep in mind is since, and again, I keep going back to September 11 because for a lot of reasons, and I mean, terrorism didn't start obviously after September 11, it's been around for a very, very long time. 
But the reason I keep going back to that is because this is where this whole sort of talk about radicalization and you know islamism or political islam you know sort of came out of that that um that sad mm. event but you've got to remember that we're it's now what 15 years since 9-11 15 years is basically if, if you look at the youth that were born at that time to now or, or youth that were very young at the time there's only one narrative these kids have heard in 15 years and it's a narrative yeah, it's a narrative, particularly for Muslim youth, the only narrative they've ever really heard about who they are and the way that the world perceives them is based on what happened in September 11 and based on what ISIS is doing mm-hmm. and based on what extremist groups or even not extremist groups are doing in the Middle East. It's always in a negative term. So mm-hmm. you can't expect then, and this is not defending any violent act, none whatsoever, but you've got to understand the way that they're actually spoken about forms their identity. If you have a person who might have some additional factors that they have to deal with, then it's a recipe for disaster, sadly. And it's, again, it's not justifying acts of violence on any level whatsoever. But if you've got kids that have been told one thing all their life and that's all they've heard and they're in a, an environment which is not conducive to positive input or is not, is not also reinforced by other positive things then you know you can see without it being an excuse how some kids will end up looking for groups or looking for people who think how they think mm. or who say the things that they think oh wow yeah you know you understand what what's in my head you get it yeah and that's exactly what groups like ISIS do they know how it works you're on Subject ACT on 2XXFM. I'm Tanya Parshan, and you've been listening to my conversation with Sophie Saden around radicalisation. Stay with us now for more of that conversation and what to look out for. We touched on propaganda before, but I'd, I'm absolutely ignorant of how this kind of works. I mean, I, in my mind, a lot of it would be online, but I, I was doing some study before we got talking this morning, and it's not all online. Quite a lot mm. of it is face-to-face, mm-hmm. and... How? Where? Where are the youth of today finding out some of this information and and deciding that this is a direction that uh, makes sense to them? Mm -hmm. Online is still the the, the main way that that recruiters in particular are able to get to to, um, a a wider number of of youth in particular. There are recruiters who um, exist in, in, in all parts of the world who will actually be going to certain communities who we often call these communities as at-risk communities. And these might be communities that might have particular, they might be in poorer areas, they might be in areas where there's a lower levels of education or not as, not access to good quality public education, for example. Mm. They might be areas where there's a lot of crime, so there's already a disruption to the social order in the community. So they know what, what areas are going to go to because they know that there are going to be people there who might be more inclined to be looking for a way out. And they know, given, you know, as I said, the last 15 years in particular, the way that the Middle East and people from the Middle East have been portrayed, in addition to things that are going on in, in a youth's mind which may conflict with, with their Western, excuse me, the Western culture and, and that's the way that they practice their religion, how strict their parenting is, what kind of freedoms they have. All those things combined make a big difference. Mm. So that makes people more, makes youth in particular more susceptible to fall prey to someone who might be saying the kinds of things that they they think that they want to hear. And we have a colleague in the UK who 
was working um, on a program uh, with the UK government and her job was, she's a psychologist, and her job was to work with girls who uh, had been stopped at the airport on their way to Syria. So our colleague shared a number of, of case studies with us without obviously going into too much detail about identities. But in one of her case studies, she told us about a teenage girl, I think she might have been 14 or 15, and she, in, in a part of the UK, a good part of the UK, who was you know doing very well at school she was a good student uh, she was going to a public school but her parents um, were quite strict and they thought that by being strict and by being careful about where they allowed her to go sort of you know, not partying not socializing they thought they were actually protecting her they weren't doing it to sort of keep her isolated or to punish her in any way in their view of the world and in their way of of experiencing life in in the UK they thought the best thing for their daughter was to keep her at home and and you know you go to school you come straight back home and even within the home there was a number of things where the siblings weren't really encouraged to have open and, and healthy discussions and debates about things and all that kind of stuff so the only real friend that the um, this particular uh, girl had was was the computer was the internet and she would go on the internet quite a lot and she ended up being on a, on a page somewhere where um, she met another girl and they were talking and she found that this other girl had similar backgrounds, similar experiences um, and all the rest. So anyway, over a, a period of time, this other girl had convinced her to, hey, let's, let's meet up and, you know, let's, let's head to Syria together. Oh. The other girl was actually an adult um, who was recruiting for ISIS. Yeah. But this child wouldn't have known that. So fortunately, for, for a number of reasons, the parents found out and um, the daughter was actually stopped at the airport. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Which then leads to the idea of, of behaviour and what to look for. I mean, exactly. I, I suppose anyone listening to this interview now is going, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't <laughs> let my child on the computer and, you know, all sorts of things. But, it, it again, it's the idea of, of healthiness to a point. So it is there something prescriptive? There's mm-hmm. probably not. I mean, parents know their children or yeah. don't, which is the problem with teenagers, really, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. the, you know, they, they are secretive by nature. They, Absolutely. You know, that's those are the years that they step away from their parents. Are trying to come up with their ideas, think you are completely daggy and and everything. Oh, so yeah. I have two of those. Yeah. <laughs> so so, what is there to look for, if anything? We have to sort of ha- keep a very healthy perspective on this, and and don't assume that you know when when a child reaches a particular age and they start doing things that they never used to do, that all of a sudden you know they're they're um, becoming radicalised. But I think it's very important to keep. Keep an open open mind as to what your child is doing, and and also be actively involved in what they're doing. Don't don't necessarily you know don't prohibit them from going on the computer and going on the internet, but be savvy, be be mindful, check to see where have they been looking, what have they been looking at, mm-hmm. talk to them, get them involved in discussions around what they're actually looking at, as much as a teenager will speak. But the thing I think the main things to look for, apart from I guess the everyday things that we expect from teenagers is things like radical changes in their behaviour. So where a child has gone from being quiet and not interested in politics to suddenly talking about politics, which which is great. There's nothing – I'd love that. I'd love to engage young people on in politics. But engaging and talking about things in, in a way that is very different from, from the conversations that have been had before – or the way that the the youth might start to to change their appearance, or the types of people that he or she may start to associate with. So any very different or very, um, again, using that horrible word, radical, <laughs> changes in their everyday 
very quickly rather than sort of over a very long period of time need to be monitored a little bit more carefully I think by parents and again we, we don't want to be jumping to conclusions when students or well, students youths start to behave in ways that we're not used to because that's just part of growing up and it's something that should be encouraged I mean you want your your students or your kids or whatever the case may be to be sharing their ideas. I mean, it's, it's a healthy thing. We want radical views. We want people with ideas that are outside the mainstream because that's how we innovate. That's how we develop the internet. That's how we develop iPhones and smartphones and computers for people who actually think outside the box. But again, it's going back to that safe space. So I guess being more involved, your, your teenager in particular in their life, being more aware of who they're with, what they're doing, doesn't mean that you've got to you know put lock and key on them or you've got to put like, you know, like a bracelet and tracking device on them but it's more about getting to know them better as a person and and, and starting to really see who they're developing into I, I would I would hazard to say there is no there are no real identifying factors that you can say yep you know we can tick the box here's a here's a package of of things to look for and they're going to be the same in every child it's tricky because growing going through the teenage years is a really tricky process it's a really difficult time for for parents and youth alike Final question, what is the government doing at the moment? I mean, you've mentioned sort of things in schools, Mm -hmm. you've mentioned what parents can sort of look out for, but, I mean, it is almost that final step, isn't it? And Mm. and somewhere we kind of like to hope that, you know, above us there is something being done or something being looked at or Mm. whether it's online and blocking ISIS propaganda Mm -hmm. videos or things like that. Mm -hmm. Is is that something that I'm okay in hoping is occurring? (laughs) I don't know about blocking ISIS videos, Mm -hmm. though, you know, I'm sure there'd be ways of of them still being able to to stream through somewhere else. But look, there are a number of, quite a number of government programs which have been designed to tackle radicalisation and violent extremism. My concern or our concern is that Many of these programs have been designed and implemented without without consultation with community and without consultation with the community groups who are basically at risk of of having their youth be lured away or having or having government policies impact their way of life. The the one thing that I that I find that governments tend to stumble on time and time again is relying a lot on empirical evidence and not allowing for primary or secondary, extensive primary and secondary evidence to be done and presented to them. It's often done as government works. It's just the way the nature of of government and public service works. Things are done with deadlines in a particular period of time and, you know, you've got to meet all these objectives in that time. Research doesn't work that way. Research needs time to develop and evolve and to, to, to do what it needs to do. So I think the most important thing, I, th- I think, to keep in mind with government approaches is that many of them are top-down approaches. They're not consulting the groups who actually probably know their youth in particular a lot better. They're not looking for those cultural nuances or to really understand the dynamics, the different dynamics. Because again, if we're, if we're talking about, say, okay, and again, I don't want this to be about Muslim groups or, or Islamic groups because it's certainly not the case. But if we just use that as the example, if we're going to talk about, oh, well, you know, a Muslim community, not all Muslim communities are the same. Not all Christian communities are the same. You can't talk about them as they're one, they're one giant block. So trying to sort of a, find a package that's like a one-size-fits-all you know, what, what might work, say, for example, in southwestern Sydney might not work in North Melbourne, for example, and it might not work within two different communities within those cities. So you've got to understand the dynamics, and the only way to understand those dynamics is by getting into it with the community, 
and talking to them and trying to understand what are the real problems that are making your youth susceptible. Now, from conversations that I've had, one of the biggest problems is ICE. It's not radicalization. It's not terrorism. It's not ISIS. It is ICE, I-C-E. That is the biggest problem for youth in any community, but particularly in, 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 in at-risk communities. So that's, that's where the money should be going. Yeah, that's, that's the real problem. And that's a whole other talk, yeah, really, a whole yeah. other interview, because as you say, I, I mean, I know here in Canberra it is a problem. And yeah, it's a problem everywhere. It's, it's a problem yeah. everywhere. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. But, you, but to understand these nuances, you need to be actually doing grassroots research, and this is something that, that my colleagues and I are actively involved in, and that is speaking to community groups, speaking to the different, the different religious groups, for example, who who um, have different perspectives, but also not thinking that, you know, as as a government that you necessarily know better in this particular space. Are those groups receptive? Most groups are, absolutely. I mean, there are some groups who, because of government approaches towards this problem, don't want to have a bar of government. You've been listening to 2XXFM 98.3. Coming up next, we've got Community Radio Network's topical storytelling show, All the Best. Tune in to hear us each weekday at 8.30 till 9am or stream us live on www.2xfm.org.au slash listen. 